glad to hear it. Um, Reese, would you pray for our morning, pray for this class and for worship? Thank you. Amen. So we had 140 of the men of this church or so on a camping trip this past week. How many of you were along? It was a good time, wasn't it? Just for those of you who weren't there to have a, a sense of the kinds of things that go on. You see the little boy with flowers in his hair and look at it here. That's how your sons are treated up there, mothers. <laughs> and, uh, and this little guy was left, I think, the whole trip to fend for himself. He was always standing around kind of going like this. <laughs> and, uh, and here's a cool picture of the young men around the fire, whoops, and here's a picture of guys who came on this 20 years ago as kids, and, uh, and see, he's always sort of all off by himself, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the life of a, of a little guy like this, always by himself especially if you're one of Jordan's kids. And uh, here is the, oh, I'm not going to be able to show it. Um, am I? Here is the meal being made by, oh, here it is. You see back there looking like he's making butter, churning butter? You see who that is? It's Matthew French who did the whole meal for 140 people. You know what he's mixing up back there? pure tallow, which I think is 100 pounds of lard. Am I right, Matthew? No, he's doing an interview. So there you go. Look in there. Do you see that? You know what it was used for? It's used, it was melted and it was used for making the fries, and the fries were delicious, weren't they? And then this is a picture I got this morning of this group 20 years ago. <laughs> How many of you recognize yourself in there? Any of you? Who's this little guy? Anyone know who that is? Anthony, Maximus. I think it's Jacob Van Warmer. That? I don't know. Who's that uh, menacing little guy? I think that's you, Gabe. <laughs> no, menacing Gabe. And this? Simeon? That? Noah? That I can't remember. <laughs> so times have changed, but the sticks remain the same. <laughs> um, two things that, uh, one, one further thing before we start. On August 8th, there's a... a I don't know what, it's not an election, so it's a plebiscite, a vote, 
on uh, a matter that should be of importance to you. It's um, issue number one on the ballot on August 8th is an issue that says it takes over 50% of a vote to change the Constitution. It requires, I think, 60% vote to change the Constitution of the state of Ohio. Why is this being fought by all the entrenched interests of, the, of our society? And if you look and see, you'll see it's hated, this issue. Why is it? Because coming up on the ballot two months later is another vote to change the Constitution. It's a, you understand? So this is going on in August. In November, three months later, there's going to be another vote that's already on the ballot. And what is that vote on? And it's enshrining abortion in the Constitution as a right. Now, this is a rearguard action, as I said before. You know, it's the kind of thing like you're trying to lock the door right as the, <laughs> the thieves are coming in. But it is nevertheless an important thing to vote on. A few years ago, Michigan was unprepared. And uh, the, the interests of, of death snuck in and established a right not only to abortion, but to just a depravity in the Constitution of Michigan. In Ohio, we're trying to say it takes at least 60% of the, of the people. And I encourage you to vote for issue one, for it. You're going to be confused. You're going to see ads coming in your mail. You've probably gotten a dozen of them already saying, oh, the big interests, the entrenched interests, the big politicians are all wanting to keep you from having your right to vote. Well, that's really not the case. It's all the big politicians who are behind this movement. You know, it's the, it's so, um, I encourage you to vote on that. Now, this is our last week on Martin Luther, and, and I, I said I wanted to deal specifically with the ways that Martin Luther has been uh, not only a powerful deliverer from bondage, but also a uh, a man who has established a view of the law, a view of obedience to God that has in our day become a problem, a great problem, and um, really I think a heresy that deserves to be labeled a grave heresy. We study church history in order to understand God and his work in time. So studying church history, we come across things that we would say are purely theological, and yet they're a part of church history. A few years ago, I think it was two years ago on Sundays in the morning in the summer, we talked about Athanasius and the Nicene Creed. How many of you were here when we talked about Athanasius and the Nicene Creed? You understand that at the time of Nicaea, in the 300s AD, when Constantine was emperor, there was a desire to, to come to a, a head, to come to an agreement about the nature of Christ. Was he truly God? Was, was he kind of God? Was he fully God? Was he fully man and not fully God? Was, or was he God and not man? And these debates were going on in, in a major way. Athanasius was the great leader of the church in the, on the side of saying Jesus was what? Fully God and fully man. But the real fight with Athanasius was with the Arians who were saying that Jesus was not fully God. He was just a spirit kind of, which was inhabited or indwelt by God, but he himself was not fully God. 
And so the question back then, remember we said the, the, the question was, was Mary Theotokos? Part of the creed, Theotokos. Theo under means what? What? God, yeah. Tokos is mother. Was Mary the mother of God? Well, that sounds horrible, doesn't it? What's that? It's a technical question. Was he the mother? Was she the mother of God? What do you think? Timothy. Yes, David, what do you think? Yeah, Bethany, what do you think? <laughs> That's not what. <laughs> it's, I didn't hear what she said. Okay, and that's, that's, the, that's the way that people said, you know, he was something there, he's something here. But the, the word was inserted, Theotokos, <clears throat> that he is, she was the mother of God. God has no mother in eternity. But in his life, Jesus was God and Mary was his mother. And so Theotokos, even though it sounds scandalous to people, is actually the way that we should view Mary the mother of God, Mary, the mother of God. Now that sounds Roman Catholic. It sounds all sorts of things, but it is the formulation that was come up to. What, I, what is important to recognize is that when all these debates were going on and when Athanasius was working, he was willing to make common cause with the Nestorians who said Jesus is God and not fully man, okay? He wanted them to come in with him and accept that Jesus was man but he was totally opposed to the Arians. He would not make common cause at all with the Arians who said he is not God. And that's why Theotokos was an important point. No, Mary was the mother of God. It really sticks it to you, you know? It puts it right in your face, right? And so um, out of that, that <clears throat> debate came our understanding in, in a large way of the formal understanding of the nature of Christ. There remained the question of the Holy Spirit, which was not dealt with there. Many of those who were against the Arians and said, no, Jesus is God, were not fully convinced that the Holy Spirit was God to the same degree that Jesus was. And so uh, uh, 80, 90 years later, something like that, at the Council of Constantinople, another one of the men that we spoke about, Gregory of Nazianzus, who was the, the leader of the church, the, the patriarch of Constantinople at the time, fought to have the church make a statement about the deity of the Holy Spirit as strongly as it had made some years, decades before, a statement about the deity of Christ. He lost, he thought. He, came to, he, he called the council, he led it, and people rejected his statements. But by the will of God, those statements, even though they were rejected by that, by that council, became the understanding of the Holy Spirit and were accepted as the church and are precisely what you and I believe today. And for the, the years since, there, have been, there has been a constant return of Arianism, okay? 
uh, those who declare that Jesus is not really God, and we live around them, and they're in our in our schools, and they're the, the Muslim. I mean, the Muslims are Aryan. Okay, I didn't mean to say Muslims, but they are. They're an Aryan heresy. The Muslims, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all these are Aryans, and we may think that the only problem we have to deal with today is uh, the the recurrence of Aryanism. But in fact, there have been new errors that have caused us to need to go back to those times 15, 1600 years ago that have cropped up just in the last century and those have been brought in by liberalism and by feminism. Feminism has attacked the nature of God. How so? By declaring patriarchy, fatherhood, evil. It is a direct attack on the nature of God and it has infiltrated the church and persuaded many people in the church. Therefore, we have a need to rethink some of what was done 1,500 years ago. Is Jesus, as God the Son, is he in submission to the Father? Well, that was a question that really wasn't in view back at Nicaea. You know, that question no one was asking. If you read Gregory of Nazianzus on it, or if you read Athanasius, you're going to see him saying things that sound like, yeah, at points and at other points, no. They really weren't trying to address that. No one was claiming that God the Father was, that fatherhood was evil. No one was attacking the fatherhood of God. They were attacking the deity of the Son. And so we've had to fight, refight some battles on that ground, even though it seemed like it was a settled issue for 1,500 years, just in the last few decades. This has become an issue again. In the same way, we might think that Luther brought clarity and an end to disputing over justification. What is the root of justification? And and in fact, he did in one way bring absolute clarity and truth to bear on this question when he said that we are justified not by the law or works of the law or by our own goodness, whether it is... uh, just our trying to be good or our receiving grace at baptism, prevenient grace as the Roman Catholics teach, which cleanses us of our initial sin, the the original sin that Augustine spoke of and taught about, that cleanses us of that and then gives us the power on our own to merit eternal life, to do the works that we must do that are righteous, to do penance when we sin, to take the mass, to do all the things that are required to be justified. So justification in the Roman Catholic system is a product of God's grace and your work. Am I, is this clear? Does anyone have any question about why I say this? It's God's grace and your works make you just. God's grace gets the ball rolling, but you must cooperate with it. You must expand, expand upon it. And therefore, your own good works are essential to your justification. Luther said, there is nothing in us that is good. No righteousness, no holiness, nothing that can appeal to God. We are only evil, all right? And in that, Luther set us free from a wickedness in, in the Roman Catholic theology that was very similar to the wickedness of the Pharisaic sect that Jesus fought against. Because there is always this idea out there that God gives grace 
But we control that grace by how we act, what we do. And so Luther was constantly, in every way, fighting against the idea that you control God. No, you don't choose God. He chooses you, and then you choose him. You are a a donkey between two riders, and you're either going to be ridden by the devil or by God. This was Luther over and over again. There is nothing that you can do in yourself. You have no power. Your will is not triumphant over God's. God's will is supreme and sovereign in everything. And so in, in, in certain ways, we were delivered from incredible bondage. But in teaching on justification and teaching on the merit of Christ that is the only salvific merit that we can have, Luther came to have a very negative view of the law. And uh, I don't think that it was an accurate view, and that's what I want to spend this morning, the remainder of our time, talking about. When you think about when we get to heaven, and we are, if, if we are there, when we are, when we are judged before the Lord, what is the criterion by which God is going to judge us? What's that? What we've done? By the work of Christ? Belief? Acts of mercy. See, we're getting a whole, a whole variety of things, and that's because the Bible does kind of support all of these, doesn't it? You, you understand? I mean, I, I could find a verse for each one of these statements that has been made. What you've done, acts of mercy, um, our belief, um, the works of Christ. Ultimately, of course, nothing establishes us but the works of Christ. And that is the sole establishing thing before God. But when we are judged, it does, it is apparent in the Bible and in the teaching of Jesus that we will be judged in accord with what? What's that? Our works, what we did, our fruit. By their fruit. By your fruit. You will be known by your fruit you will be judged, right? By our fruit. And so Jesus is constantly talking about your fruit. What kind of fruit are you bearing? Now, fruit is a funny thing, isn't it? Because in some respects, fruit comes from a plant working hard. And I mean, as plants work, right? You know, the plant has to work hard, but there have to be conditions surrounding the plant, water, sunlight, you know? And so there is a, a kind of dual nature to fruit that, that is requiring both the power of God and the power of man. The, they both have to be at work for there to be fruit. Now, what is the power of God? Well, when we, when we are asking on the basis of what will we be judged in heaven, the one thing that we don't find is God asking, did you have faith? He asks, have you borne fruit? You understand this? The question in heaven is not going to be, did you have faith? 
It's going to be, have you borne fruit? This may sound crazy, but it's, if you read the Bible, you're just going to find over and over again. Faith is essential to fruit, right? You can't bear fruit without faith. Faith is essential to fruit. But faith combines with obedience to produce fruit. Do you understand? Faith, obedience without faith is not obedience. Faith is the power. Faith is reaching up to heaven and saying, by faith I will do this. You can do nothing without faith that pleases God. There is no fruit without faith. But there is no fruit without obedience either, is there? There can be no fruit without obedience. Does faith save you? No. Does obedience save you? No. Right? Does fruit save you? No. You are saved by the power of Jesus Christ, which is yours through faith, which establishes you as a child of God. But what we find in the Bible, and this is something that Luther, uh, I, could, I could read to you from Luther at this point in a number of ways. But what we find in the Bible, I'm convinced, and this is in opposition to Luther at points. The Luther, I've read a lot of Luther and he goes all over the place, all right? But what we find in the Bible about this is that Jesus calls us to live fruitful lives to such a degree, obedient lives to such a degree, that we can only accomplish it by supernatural power. So... Luther wants to say that any attempt at obedience after you've come to know Christ is wrong. That's why he wanted to throw James out of the Bible. We talked about this last week. It's why he didn't like the book of Hebrews. It's why he didn't like Jude or Revelation. He really didn't like those books, and he put them at the end of his Bible. And he said that James was an epistle of straw because of what James says in that book. What is it that he says that Luther just hated? Yeah, faith without works is dead. And do you not know that we are justified by our works as well as by faith? Luther has no grid to understand that by because he is so opposed to the merit-based salvation of the Roman church that he will have nothing to do with it. I could read to you many places. He hates, in a sense, Moses. He, he looks at Moses and he calls him, uh, I read this last week, um, but he says things about Moses that just kind of boggle the mind. He talks about how we need the gospel and not the law. You could say by way of parallel that the gospel has left us in the hand of our own counsel, set us free from the law, in other words, to use and have dominion over things as we will, whereas Moses and the Pope 
did not leave us to that counsel, but constrained us by laws and subjected us rather to their wills. So he says that Moses is just like the Pope who added his rules to God's law. And he actually says that of Moses in this bondage of the will. It's certainly something that we would say, whoa, you shouldn't have gone there, Luther, right? Moses was the very, what was it called in the Old Testament by Paul? The oracle of God, the voice of God. But he says this is just Luther, that Luther says this is just. So I want to talk to you about the, the situation we have today in the, in the church, and it's one of the reasons why um, we ended up leaving the Presbyterian Church of America a few years ago. And that is that we've come to a day that says fruit doesn't matter, that belief is all that matters. If you believe the right things, you're saved. We hope that will lead to power, but it doesn't have to. You can be stuck living with homosexual desire, living always on the verge of that sin without any ability to overcome it. You can be stuck with that for a lifetime and that's just okay, you know? You can identify as a homosexual man or woman and be a Christian because you believe in Jesus and him covering your blood. And so it has become a form of salvation that's entirely, we would say, nominal. It exists in our mind. It doesn't flow through to our actions, but we have these impeccable minds, these these minds that are constrained by the flesh and, and, and our minds are set free and we live beyond the flesh, but we're still tied to the flesh. And really it's a view that says the flesh does not matter, what you do doesn't matter. Um, and you've, you've seen I'm talking about it in terms of what we just went through as a church a few years ago, but it's all over in the evangelical world. It used to be in many, many areas that you would say, hey, you can't do that. But we've come to the point today where we can't say you can't do that. So the congresswoman this last week, all of you heard of her? Congresswoman, I don't think many of you have heard of it. No. Uh, a congresswoman from the South who divorced her husband a few years ago, and she's a very good-looking woman, went to, to the National Prayer Breakfast and stood up and said, wow, I was, you know, I was in bed with my, my fiancé this morning, and he wanted to go at it. And I said, i got to get to the prayer for records. i got to speak there. Now, she goes to an evangelical church. She, her pastor was at the prayer breakfast. You know, <laughs> these are the things. That, and the whole evangelical world is saying, well, she's just a sinner trying to follow Jesus, Right? And she tweeted after it caused a firestorm what she said in the news. She tweeted sometime later that day or the next day and said, I'm just a sinner looking for Jesus. I thought that was what church was for. Right? And that's, someone gave her those words because that's the evangelical mantra. You know, I'm just a sinner looking for Jesus. I'm trying, you know, but I'm broken. So we look at the evangelical world today and we say, hey, you know, this, is, this is where we're at. But I think it's important to understand that the evangelical world has gone far from the teaching of Jesus. That this was not the teaching of Christ. And that the teaching of Christ is not at odds with the teaching of Paul. 
but is entirely consistent with it, that James is not at odds with Paul, but is entirely consistent with it. And honestly, I'm kind of scandalized that Luther didn't try and kick out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from his Bible as well, because if he thinks those books correspond with his, with his view in this one area, he's very wrong. Two occasions when, when people came to Jesus and asked, what, how do I inherit eternal life, okay? Um, one was the rich young ruler. The other was the Pharisee who came and asked, Master, what, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One is found, the rich young ruler is found in Matthew 19. The, the, the Pharisee is found in Luke 10. In Luke 10, when the Pharisee says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus respond? Can any of you remember? It's in the parable. It precedes the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the law. What does it say? And the man says, that's the rich young ruler. Okay, we're, yeah, they're easy to conflate, but yeah. Um, he says, uh, you know, what does he say? And soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And Jesus says to the man, yes, go do this and you will live. And then the man, we read, seeking to justify himself says, well, who's my neighbor? Now he thinks he stands with God, but he's not quite certain about this question of neighbor. And so Jesus then tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he asks the man at the end of the parable, after the, the, the one who has been a neighbor is the Samaritan, right? Something that is scandalous to this guy, something that to him is impossible, you know, like it can't be. He says, who was the neighbor to that, that man on the highway, that, the, the, the man who was robbed and beaten? And the Pharisee, being honest, says, well, it was the Samaritan. And then Jesus says what? Go thou and do likewise, right? Now, what was the original question? And what must I do to receive eternal life? What is Jesus' ultimate answer? Love your neighbor, okay? He's, he, he points him to the law. But he points him to the law in a way that makes it impossible. <laughs> is it an easy requirement for this man to do this? Do you think there's anything in him that can love a Samaritan? And so he's, he's pointed to the law, but it's pointing it to the law in a way that he can't keep it. But it is pointing him to the law, and Jesus does expect him to love his neighbor, doesn't he? But he can't do it without faith. He can't do it without turning to God. He can't do it without loving the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, which is what he claims he's he can do that one. It's about the neighbor he's concerned about. He can't do it, but Jesus is illuminating the fact that he hasn't really loved it, done the second table of the law, loved his neighbor as himself, nor has he loved God and trusted God because God wants him to live that way. All right? So it leaves the man back where he began, but with an understanding that he can't do it in himself, right? But he doesn't say, believe in me, does he? It's not what Jesus says. It does require him to believe in Jesus and to see his sin to do it. The second one is the, the parable of, 
Uh, it's not the parable, it's the story of the rich young ruler who also comes and says, what must I, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, uh, what does he say to the guy? Yeah. And, and Jesus, he says, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, and then I think it's on this occasion, Jesus, I'm getting confused, but Jesus says, well, you, you know, love, you know, honor God, love your, your neighbors, um, do not steal, do not lie. And the man says, all this I've done since I was young, what, what more must I do? All right. And what does Jesus say, what more must I do when, when he's asked that question? Sell all your possessions and come and follow me. Sell all your possessions, you left out a part. And give to the poor, all right? And it's basically the same kind of thing he said to the previous guy. Oh, you really love me? And if the whole law is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, then love your neighbor as yourself. Go and sell your possessions. Give what you get to the poor. Come and follow me and you will have eternal life. Now, has he taken him away from the law? Is this an answer that deprecates the law, that makes less of the law? No. He actually says, look, I expect you to go further in the law than you might think you need to. Just, what? The law is good. It's perfect. Jesus says throughout the, his, his teaching that the lawless ones are, are going to be cast out of heaven you under am i making are you aware of all the verses that jesus uses jesus speaks and he says um and then i will declare to them depart from me you who do not believe Remember Jesus saying it, he's going to separate the sheep from the ghost. And then I will say to those cast into hell on my left side, away from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. The Son of Man will send, six chapters later, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. So you too outwardly appear to the Pharisees, righteous to men, but inwardly, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And in Matthew 24, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now, one of the things that, that has been so striking to me as I've thought about this over the years is that Jesus continually points people to the full law. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Luther says, any attempt to obey the law, and he's really including the Ten Commandments in this. I can point to you in his commentary in Galatians to the point where I can, I mean, I have it right here. I'm not, I don't have the time to go into it. When Paul, talking about the law, uh, I, I, it's, it's going to take too long to explain it, but I can show it to you later. But basically, Luther is just saying law, law is bad. Paul, in Galatians, Paul attacks the law, he says, and it's bad, and you can't go there. If you go there instead of the Christ, you're going to a wrong place. You're doing wrong. And yet, 
if we take Christ's commandments, his, his way of summarizing the commandments, which is also the way that was found in the Old Testament under the law of Moses, to be love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, right? What is the first part, the, we call it the first table that has to do with our relationship with God. What is that requiring? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. What would we call that? What? Wolfgang, what would we call that if we wanted to give it one word? AJ. Okay, you're all right. But what I would say is it's faith. The law requires faith. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. You know, I am, in fact, the Jews view that as the first commandment is I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of bondage, out of the land of Egypt. That that is their first commandment. What does that call for? <laughs> Calls for faith, right? The whole first. So the law demands faith. How can we say faith is opposed to the law? When the very law teaches faith, the love of God. Am I making sense? And so I go, wait a second. We can't separate law from faith. We can't do that. If we separate law from faith, we've separated the love of God from our obedience to it. We've said that the Ten Commandments... And so when we come to the portions of the Bible, such as Galatians, where... Paul writes about condemned are all those who labor under the works of the law, right? And this is a classic passage that's used to establish the Lutheran view and the view of evangelicalism today. The works of the law. Well, what I'd say to you is if Luther is right that God in inspiring Paul to write that uh, condemned is all who rely on works of the law are all who rely on the works of the law. If Luther is right in saying that that means any, any attempt to obey the Ten Commandments as an approach to God, okay? Any attempt to approach God through obedience to, to the Ten Commandments. If Luther is right in saying that that is condemned, by Paul in Galatians as a work of the law. Then Paul shouldn't be talking about circumcision there, right? He should be talking about, I mean, if he really wants to make his point, Paul should be talking about trying to love God because that's what the law teaches. So if Luther is right, am I making sense here? Is this, make, is this coming through? If, if Luther really is right and Paul is an, anathematizing, casting out any attempt at all to obey God as wrong in reliance on yourself, then the, the obvious choice for Paul would be to say, don't worry about your idols. Don't worry about your adultery. If you try and give up adultery rather than go to Jesus, you're doing works of the law. But he constantly refers to certain 
elements of the law, the ceremonial law. He refers to circumcision. He refers to what else? What does Paul attack when he's attacking works of the law? What's always surrounding it? Circumcision is one thing. What else? What's that? Festivals, Sabbath days, not the Sabbath of the week, but the Sabbath days. And what is the third thing? Food. He's attacking these things. He's saying, if you rely on these things, you are under condemnation. They're works of the law. He never attacks, Paul never attacks obedience to God, love for God. Never attacks trying to, trying to do good for your neighbor. He commands these things. But if Luther is right, then Paul is actually attacking the entire uh, uh, law, any attempt to obey it. Yet the law itself requires the thing that Luther has said is preferable to the law, faith. Am I making sense here? Yeah, AJ. But that's right. Remember last summer talking about the Platonic philosophers and how they say, I am in my mind and everything else is shadow, but the idea and the reality of, the reality of things is, is my mind. And so Platonism says it's what's going on in our minds that's real and the, the, the exalted ideals. And it, it really hates the body and says the body tears us down, the body is bad, the body is... And this is, these ideas have... There's a synthesis of ideas here, and Platonic ideas have always been around in the church, but it's come to say, I am what I think I am. That's faith. I have an exalted idea of myself and my relationship to Christ. That's faith. And then if you are in crew and you go to one of their conferences and you begin to doubt that, you're told, no, maintain that strong feeling about yourself. That's faith. You know? Don't doubt it. Don't look at your sin. Look at yourself in Christ, right? And you know it's a circular train. It, it, it never gets you off of it. It's continual doubt. Huh, no, I am. Whereas Jesus gives us power. Okay, I, I, I've got a, a minute and a half left, and I've only covered about a tenth of what I've got. But let me, and I'm not going to go back to it. But, but let me say to you, how many of you, no, you're saved this morning. Know it. Micah, what led you to know you're saved? Stand up. And did you achieve victory? Are you achieving victory and did you achieve it? Uh, how many of you who know you're a Christian today would say you know you're a Christian because God delivered you from something? You know, and I'm going, this is the reality of faith. It's not mental, it's real. 
It's claiming the power of God and living by it. It is power. It's not just mental. But in the world today, faith and salvation and works and fruit are all mental acts. Am I making sense? So I in no way, I'm at 10 o'clock, so I want to deprecate and diminish the glory of Christ, the sovereignty of God in saving me. Man, I had no power. I had none until Jesus just appeared to me in Alaska 30-some years ago, 40-some years ago. I had no power. I had nothing, you know. I don't want to diminish the glory of God. I am absolutely committed to only, sola grace, only grace, only by faith in Christ, only the merit of Christ. Christ is all. But I'm convinced that there is no divide, no chasm between saying these solas, sola Christo, sola fide, sola grace, you know, only faith, only grace, only Christ, only God's sovereign choice. No chasm between these things and my obeying God and bearing fruit. So that's why we call as a church for you to bear fruit. That's why I'm so proud to be in a church where so many are bearing fruit in every way that the Bible commends fruit to us. Bearing children, raising them, teaching them God's word. This is the stuff of salvation. This is the sign of God's power in our midst. Am I making sense? Yes, Kevin. That's, that's exactly right. Faith is a gift itself, right? Uh, it's not as though faith is something that we come up with ourselves. And so in, in evangelical world today, we've reduced the law to one thing, faith. That's the one thing we do as we believe. So you're told to, to look to your faith, right? Maybe you guys haven't grown up around the evangelical world enough to know this, but I know it. You know, and so faith is the one thing we do. Like, do faith, do faith, do faith, and you're saved. And, and we say that faith is nothing. We say that faith is, is that's really not a, a work, right? But faith is the whole first table of the law. If, there's, if anything is a work, it's faith. What is the obedience God requires of you? The obedience of, Paul says this, Romans 1 and Romans, the last chapter at 16. He calls it, what does God want from you? The obedience of faith. Faith itself is obedience, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to talk next week about how we've obfuscated sanctification through this? And number two, what did Jesus, when the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, when he ran into Jesus then, what did Jesus tell him to do? At some point, maybe Nate will have you preach on that passage, all right? But, but we're not going there. We're going to Calvin and the, the, the rest of the Reformation. We spent a lot of time on Luther. What? Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Yes, he said stop sinning to the man at Bethesda. I, I, I know that this, is, this has been a short treatment. I can't do more than this. If, if God enables, I'll write some on it in the next couple of years. But I love you guys, and I'm grateful that God has given us a church that is fruitful. Randy, close us in prayer, would you?
Amen. Thank you. Thank you, guys and ladies.